great. What is it about them? How are they different from everyone else? I asked this of a group of teenagers a couple of months ago. We were talking about character, and I asked them, I said, you know, there's, there's heroes, there's people we look up, look up to, there's, there's people who are great, we think they're great. What, what are the character traits that make them great? And so these kids, 13 to 17 or 18, started listing off attributes, and I walked over to a whiteboard and I was writing them down. Some said honesty, so wrote down honesty. Some said they had integrity. Write that down. That's good. That's good. Some said they're, they're not selfish. Well, that's pretty good. So I wrote that down. Some said, well, they, they have courage in the face of danger. And we listed off, I don't know, a good two dozen different attributes. But the one attribute that was not listed off and that I have never or rarely ever heard about what makes someone great is this. Humility. Humility in our culture in America today, if, if we're having a deep philosophical conversation, someone might dare say, yes, yes, humility is good. You need to be humble. But, but in everyday society, when we think of humility, we think of someone who's weak, who is taken advantage of, who is not the kind of person that we really want to spend a lot of time with because we have a wrong understanding of what humility looks like. In our passage today, Christ addresses this with his disciples. And so let us turn to our passage and read. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like this little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that had wandered off? And if he finds it, 
I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Greatness. Who's greater? Who's the best? The disciples, we find from the context of Mark 9, which is the parallel to this passage, had been going along the road and they had actually been arguing quietly and hanging back and disputing among themselves who was going to be the greatest or who was the greatest in the kingdom. And Mark 9 tells us that Christ knew what they were arguing about and he confronts them on it. And you can, you can just see them. I mean, have you ever been caught um, at work talking about someone else? And, and they walk up behind you, and all of a sudden you realize it, and you wonder, oh my goodness, how much did they hear? I mean, that's what the disciples are going through. Oh my goodness, he caught us. And so they fess up. And they say, well, uh, <laughs> Jesus, uh, we, we're kind of wondering who, who, who's the greatest in your kingdom. And Jesus does something very peculiar. You see, Jesus, Jesus could have said, you know, you, you, you guys don't need, to be, don't need to be worried about that. I, I know who it is. You, you, don't worry about it. I got it covered. And he could have kind of covered over what they were doing, and he could have kind of tried to treat just the symptoms of their problem. It was kind of like you have a problem with your automobile, right? And and, and it's leaking oil, and it doesn't shift into second, and there's a weird clanging, and you go to the mechanic, and and he says, okay, this, this is what we can do. It's leaking oil, not a problem. Here's an oil pan, just put it underneath there. Says that you're probably going to be losing more oil than you want. So here's here's six quarts of oil. So so when you're going down the road, if it runs low on oil, just just pour a little more in. All right, your your transmission won't shift. That's okay. Just never drive over 15 miles an hour. He can address all the symptoms, but but what's the problem? The car is going to explode. It's going to have a catastrophic failure. It's not going to work. Right. Christ could have addressed just the symptoms of what was going on with the disciples. He could have said, don't worry about it, I know what's going on. But the problem is, is the spiritual life, their spiritual engine, was having major problems. And so instead, Christ cuts to the heart of the issue. How does he do it? He sees a little kid and he brings him and he sets him right in the middle of all of them. And he turns the question of greatness on its head. For he says, you all are worried about who's greatest in the kingdom. Let's talk about how you get into the kingdom to begin with. Unless you humble yourself like this little child, you will not even get in to the kingdom of God. You see, the problem was a lack of humility on the disciples' part. And what is the opposite of that? Where humility does not reign, pride is the master. 
And you're saying you're worried about who's going to be the MVP. Let me talk about how you become part of the team to begin with. And he uses the lowliest of examples in the first century. Children in the first century uh, in Roman and Greek culture were, were not treated very well at all. I mean, they were oftentimes looked down upon and despised, and especially if it was a girl. The Romans and the Greeks were known for actually exposing their children to the elements in hope that that child would die so that they could have a boy, because a boy was better. But a boy really didn't fare much, what, much better in that society. They had no standing. They were lowest in the social structure. Now, in first century Judaism, children had somewhat of a better position because they understood that children were made in the image of God, that they were a gift from God. And so they cared for their children. They nurtured them, they taught them, they instructed them, but children were still the lowest on the social totem pole. In our day and age, we say children should be seen and not heard. Well, it really wasn't much different then, either. I mean, think about it. The disciples had previously <laughs> tried to hold back children from coming and seeing Jesus. Why? Because, because they weren't important. They weren't worthy. They weren't good enough to come and see the Master. All the adults needed to hear what he was saying. The adults needed his time. And yet here, Christ is holding up this lowest person in society as an example to them and saying, if you want to know what it is to be great, then be humble like this child. What is, what is the humility of a child? What is Christ telling them? Last week, Dawn and I were running some errands and we were driving down one of the highways and, and I looked off to the, to the side of the road as we were passing uh, kind of one of the mall areas and, and in, the, in the parking lot, they had set up this carnival. Now, I remember carnivals growing up, you know, or fairs we used to go to once in every, every once in a while, and, and I really enjoyed the games. And, and one of the games that was, was fun but I never could win was High Striker. You, you know the game, right? You got the hammer, there's a lever, there's a weight on the other end, and it's, it's your job to hit that as hard as you can, and, and if you get it all the way to the top and you ring the bell, you get a prize, right? Well, imagine, imagine a father and daughter. She's cute four years old, they're walking by, and she says, "Ah, Daddy, Daddy, win win me one of those. And she points to the high striker, and and the father, of course, looks at her daughter, and all of a sudden, he says, yes, I can do that. (laughs) The thunder god Thor can pick up his hammer, and I can win you the prize. And so the father walks over and picks up the hammer, and he picks up and slams it down the first time, and what happens? He duffs it. It hits on the side, and that thing goes about six inches high. And the daughter says, Daddy, Daddy, win, win me the prize. And so the father steps back and says, Okay, I've got two more shots. And so he swings it again, he hits it, and this time it, it, it goes about halfway up. But no bell, no prize. So the father begins to imagine himself 
as four. Rippling biceps, a six-pack just like Chris Hemsworth. And he picks up the hammer, he raises his trusty hammer millimeter, and with a great mighty swing, he brings it to the ground like a lightning bolt. And he strikes the target, and on the other end, the weight rockets to the sky, just like a ballistic missile. And it strikes the bell, and a resounding noise goes out. And the father has won, and he receives his prize, the stuffed unicorn with rainbow-colored wings. And he turns to his daughter, and, and he gives the prize to his daughter. And what does the child do? How does the child respond? Does the child say, no, no, daddy, daddy, I need to be worthy to receive this. Daddy, if, if, if you had given me the shot, I actually could have swung that hammer and I could have got this for myself. I'm, I'm good enough. No, how, how does the child respond? The child receives the gift and what happens? Joy explodes in the heart of the child. Why? Because the child knew they couldn't win it for themselves. They didn't have the strength. They didn't have the ability. But they knew someone who did. They could go to their father. She could run to her father and say, Daddy, I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. Help me. What is the humility of a child? It's coming to the father, knowing your weakness. It's coming to the Father with open hands. You see, the disciples wanted to come, and they wanted to say, I'm the greatest. I mean, Peter, James, and John, look, I mean, that's the inner circle, right? We must, we must be the top three at least, right? I mean, Peter, Peter, Jesus, you said that on this rock you would build your kingdom. Certainly, I must be the greatest. What were they doing? It was all about what they had done. You see, Christ says, what is great is not what you have done, but what you receive from me. Children are empty-handed, and they are fully dependent upon their parents. In our society, dependence is not something that we want to think about. It's not something we relish. We, we, don't, we don't go to talk to our friends and say, yep, you know what, I am completely dependent upon this other person for my success. I am so happy about that. It's great. It's wonderful. I appreciate this. I am so happy about that other person. No. We have a bootstrap mentality. Dependency on other people is the last thing that we want. But Christ says, to enter my kingdom, it is the first requirement that you realize you are fully dependent. You know, the uh, carnival game is not the only place that we see that. Here we have a baptismal font. The children of this church, when they are born, are presented before us as a congregation. And one of our pastors administers the sacrament of baptism to them. And what is being said? 
What we are not saying is that through these waters they are saved, but what we are saying is that it is an image that just as the child has no choice about their baptism, they are helpless and they are fully dependent upon their parents. So also, spiritually, they are fully dependent upon the Father in heaven. This sacrament says you're dependent upon God, but it says He loves you and He cares for you and He is mighty on your behalf. Come to Him with open hands, with empty hands, fully dependent. That is what greatness looks like. Who are the children, though, in this passage that Christ is talking about? Surely he has a child in front of him, but he identifies the children not only as physical children, not only as those children who would have baptism administered to them, but he says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We all are children if we will humble ourselves before the Lord. But what does it mean to be children in God's family? What does it mean to be children in His kingdom? In verse 5 it says, And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Those who humble themselves before the Lord are identified with Christ. So much so are we identified with Christ that if we place our lives in His hands, He says that when someone welcomes you, they welcome me. But He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... It's better that a millstone be hung around their neck and they be cast into the sea. Certainly that is a warning to all of us to watch out for our brothers and sisters, but it is also a comfort to us. This is how much Christ loves us, that when others act upon us, they are acting upon him Him. He is identifying with us. We are being identified with Him in a way that is inseparable. Those who care for the littlest ones in the kingdom are caring for the greatest in the kingdom, the king over all of the kingdom. It is... It is a difficult thing to be identified as a child, as a little one, as being dependent, being humble. Why is it hard? Because of our own pride. Pride is ever with us. It is ever before us in our own hearts. In fact, as we move on through this passage in verses 7 through 10, there is a warning that is given, not just to others outside of the church, 
but to those inside of this church. For to enter into the kingdom is to have to become humble, to, to rely on Christ for our all. But as members of the kingdom, humility is not just upward-faced to God the Father, but humility is outward-faced towards the other children, towards the other little ones, towards the lowliest in the kingdom. And so Christ warns both the world and his disciples, driving deeper into the root of the issue, saying the, to the apostles, it is, to the disciples, it is not just your selfish ambition here, but there is something that runs even deeper. There is a problem that is even darker, that is more sinister than you could imagine. And he uses tremendously graphic language. It's language that we've heard before, back in chapter 5 of this same book. Christ says something very much the same, but the context here is slightly different. He issues a woe to the world for the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, he says, but woe to the man through whom they come. In our life, there will be temptations. We as a church cannot get away from it. You do not run into these doors and all of a sudden enter into a room devoid of sin and temptation. You carry it in with you. It is not the things on the outside of this church that defile us, but it's the very things in our own heart that defile us. Christ says, such things must come, such temptations must come. Why? So that our faith is tried and proved to be real. There is something we learn going through temptations. We learn of our dependence upon Christ. Humility is exercised because we sense our own weakness. But Christ says, woe to the man through whom they come. And he says, for that man, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It is better for you to be crippled and enter into life than to have a whole body and be thrown into hell. Now, what is Jesus saying? That, I mean, if, if I poke my eye out, it's not going to keep me from lusting, Jesus. If he poked both of them out, it's not going to keep me from lusting. If, if I'm a thief, just cutting off one hand is not going to stop the fact that I want to steal in my heart. What Christ is saying is, is that you must see your sin with the same gravity and the same horror that he sees it. And you must take extraordinary measures to rid yourself of those sins that so easily entangle you. But what is that particular sin here? In verse 10, Christ says, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. In the larger context, here the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And Christ says, If you sin, take measures to stop. In fact, he warns, do not look down on these little ones. What is their sin? It is the sin of pride. In their own pride, in their own arguing for who is the greatest, something that may seem like it hurts no one, 
is damaging others around them. Why? Because they're setting an example. They are teaching through their actions. Any of you who grew up in the 80s or watched any TV in the 80s, do you remember the commercial, the kid sitting in his room and he's smoking a joint? And, and the mom comes in, right, and says, What are you doing? What are you doing? Where did you learn that? And what's his response? I learned it from watching you, okay? I learned it from watching you. You know, in our children's ministry, our children are learning from watching us. What they see of Christ is what they see in us. And what it may sound like is is that I'm telling you to be perfect. Let's, Let's get on the treadmill. Come on, everybody be perfect. Come on, run with me. This is great, isn't it? But that's not at all what we're saying. You see, behind this warning is a heart that should be turned towards repentance. It is a heart that out of humility is willing to admit that I am a sinner. How do our children understand what God we serve when we say, I'm a sinner just like you. I need Jesus just like you. Let's go to him and let's ask his forgiveness. Let's throw ourselves on his mercy. Let's humble ourselves before our mighty God and he will save us. You see, the example is not an example of perfection. The example is an example of humble repentance. But pride prevents that. Why? Because pride is, by its very definition, turned inwards on ourselves. I'm good enough. Well, even if I'm not really good enough, I'm still better than that guy. Do you remember the Pharisee and the publican who went up to the temple to pray? What did the Pharisee say when he was praying? It says he stood off on his own and he said, God, thank you that I'm not like that other guy. What was he saying? Well, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than that guy. It was turned inwards on his own sufficiency that I'm good enough, but it was also turned downwards, looking down on others. Pride always thinks less of everyone else and everything else. And Christ is here saying that is the most destructive, dark, desperately wicked attitude you can have. So pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, take off your foot to rid yourself of this, for you will die. The way of pride leads to death. But humble repentance, coming to Christ and throwing yourself on His mercy, leads to life. But it's not only an attitude of humble repentance, but it is also a need for us to be caretakers of our brothers and sisters around us, of the littlest ones in the kingdom. And by little and the most humble, I do not mean just the children. For the only people that are baptized at this font are not just children, but also those who are new to the faith. Here, Christ is calling us not to look down on others, but what? To love and to care for them. 
With the negative admonition, there is also a positive, and that is to watch out for your brothers and sisters, those lowliest among us. Not because you're sufficient, but because you know they're in the same condition that you are. We are to be our brother's keeper. In Genesis, we read the story of Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel go and they offer sacrifices to God. Cain brings of his first fruits. He is a farmer, and so he brings grain and those other things for his offering. Abel is a shepherd, and so he brings of his flocks and of his herds. And Scripture says that Abel's sacrifice was received above Cain's sacrifice. And Cain has a violent reaction. It says that one day they were out in the field. Cain had said to his brother Abel, let's go to the field. And while they're out there, Cain strikes down his brother Abel and kills him. And God comes down and he says, Cain, where's, where's Abel at? I haven't seen him in a while. What does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? And the father says, then why does his blood cry out to me from the ground? The implicit answer to Cain's question is, yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. You are to love others and to care for them, not to kill them. We murder those around us every day. Maybe we don't strike them down with a club or stab them in the heart with a knife but we harbor to them, against them, a prideful attitude. If through the back doors walked into this church a prostitute, what would be your reaction? Do you grab your children and shuttle them away because you're afraid that they'll be a bad influence? Do you put them in the corner and say, here, sit here, out of the way? Or do you receive them as Christ received sinners? You see, to shun them, to turn them away, those who are lowliest among us, those who need Christ the most, those who need our love the most, is to murder them. And it would be better if we ourselves were drowned in the ocean than that we should look down upon them. Pride is turned inwards. Humility is turned outwards. Pride says, serve me. Humility says, I will serve you. Pride says, you have offended me. Humility says, forgive me for offending you. Pride says, I made it on my own, so should you. Humility says, if not for Jesus, none of us would make it. Pride looks down on others with contempt. Humility reaches out to others with compassion. Pride says, no one is good enough for my love. Humility says, no one is so bad that they cannot be loved. Pride says, I'm too important to watch out for the little guy. Humility says, the little ones are too important to God for me not to watch out for. Pride says, I'm not as bad as others. Humility says, oh God, 
Have mercy on me, the sinner. It can sound as though these are just more rules to follow. Stop being bad, Christians. Start being good. Don't be proud. Be humble. Do it all on your own. That in and of itself is prideful, right? I mean, pride seeps in everywhere. Look at, look at how humble I am, the person says. I've entered the kingdom of God. Boy, what kind of person must I be if I can be so humble? You see, humility does not rely on us, but it relies on Christ. If it relies on anything else, then it is not humility. For you have closed your hand around something to say, I'm good enough, I'm great enough. I deserve something. Humility looks solely to Christ for all that we are. And to what kind of person do we look? Where, David, is the grace in this passage? It's not just about not being prideful. It's not just about trying to be more humble. But there is grace. You know, in Scripture, grace is, is everywhere. It is the underlying melody or the underlying harmony to the melody of the passage. You know, you think of, I think of uh, the bagpipes, right? I, I, I really like bagpipes. I think the last time I heard bagpipes played was actually here in this church. It was a Reformation Sunday, and somebody who was looking extremely dapper in a full Scottish garb was standing up in the balcony, and they were playing Amazing Grace. And you know what's amazing about the bagpipes? It's, it's not necessarily just about the canter, you know, the little thing that they finger that actually carries the melody, but it's, it's what they call the drones on the pipe. It's, it's those that have that resonance, that deep resonance that, that shakes you down and your heart flutters. You feel it in your soul. The music imbues you and it moves you on. That's grace. For here in this passage, Christ not only talks about how do you enter the kingdom, what it looks like to be part of the kingdom, but he also says this is what it looks like when I rejoice over you in my kingdom. Here is the grace. He says, what do you think? Does a shepherd who has a hundred sheep If one goes astray, will he not leave the 99 and go find the one that is lost? And after he has brought it back, will his joy not be all the greater for that one that he has found? And he says, so the Father himself is not willing that anyone should perish, any of these little ones should perish, but that he should have them all complete in his flock. The picture here is the picture of the humility of Christ. Christ does not look at his sheep and say, oh, those dumb sheep, those stupid sheep. He ran off. It's his own fault. If he gets killed, so what? No, the king of heaven looked down upon his flock and said, I'm missing one. I must have that one. And he leaves the other 99 behind in safety and he runs and he finds the one and he brings it back. And what does it say? He is overwhelmed with joy for finding the one that was lost. 
You know what it's like to have that kind of a joy? It was uh, a number of years ago, uh, my, my family went down to Disney World. And the, kid, the kids were young, so Nick was probably about five years old. Riley at that time must have been about two, uh, two and a half. And uh, Cody was, was in Dawn's stomach. I remember Dawn waddling around Disney World uh, with Cody in anticipation. And Ryder was just not even a twinkle in an eye. But we, we went to Disney World and we had a lot of fun. And I remember we went into one of the uh, shows that they have. We walked into a building and we sit down and all the kids are lined up. And my mother-in-law is with us and she's at one end and Dawn and I are at the other end. And my brother-in-law and sister-in-law were with us and we're having a good time. And on the screen comes the Little Mermaid. And all the kids are excited and everything. And we sit through this and it's great and it's wonderful. And the lights are all nice and dark and you're just enjoying it. And then it, it's over and it's time to leave. So we all stand up and we file out and we go on and we say, well, what, what should we ride next? And so as we're walking along talking about where we're going to go and maybe what we're going to do that night, all of a sudden, I start taking a head count. And I realize I'm coming up one short. Nick is nowhere to be seen. What is my response? Oh, No. My eyes are as big as saucers. Where in the world is Nick? And my brother-in-law realizes all of a sudden, too, what I'm doing. And he's like, Nick's not here. So what do we do? We turn on and we take off running back to where we last saw him. Several hundred yards. We are sprinting. Dead sprint. Right? Because we've lost Nick. And we get back to where we were, and what do we see? We see Nick, he had kind of wandered off and had, had been captivated by something else, some other flashy thing. And, and Nick, Nick doesn't realize he's lost at that point. He's consumed with whatever he's looking at, right? And we find him, and I will tell you, the joy in finding him at that moment was unbelievable. I've got him again. He's safe. Now, was my joy to the exclusion of my other children? No. My joy was found in that my family was whole and complete. The community of the Riscos was whole. Everyone who was supposed to be in there was there. We could love on one another again. We could go ride a roller coaster and enjoy it together again. The one who was lost was found. That is the joy of the Father towards us. If you see, humility allows us to see our own lostness. And once we see that, we see the joy that Christ has in, over us and on account of us because He has found us. Because we have come to Him and He has taken us in His arms and He has said, You are not lost. I have you. You're mine. You belong here. You see, being humble does not exclude you. But it includes you. Because to be humble is to recognize that you're part of a community of lost people, broken people, people who are hurt, people who need Christ. And no longer are you, are you on the outside, but you are now on the inside of a loving, caring family. And it is ours 
as members of that family in humility to love and to care for one another. Why? Because that's what Christ did for us. You see, greatness greatness is being lowly. It's being the servant. It's recognizing our own need. It's coming open-handed. But it's entering into a joy that is unexpressible. The only way that you can describe it is to know it, to be part of it, to be received by Christ, to know His love, and for Him to say, you are the greatest because you are Mine. How do we become the greatest? We become His child. We know His love. We know our dependence upon Him and we know His sufficiency for us. Let us pray. Father God, we humble ourselves before You because You are mighty and You are great, but because You have loved us when we have been unlovely. When we have nothing to bring to you, you have brought everything to us. When we were lost and we were alone, you came to us and you found us. When the disease of our own pride was killing us and we lay dead on the table, yet you came and you gave us life. Lord, help us to treat others that way, to love the lowly, to care for those who are around us, to reach out because that is what you did for us. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.